Welcome to the Club of Rome podcast on the 50th anniversary of the Limits to Growth. In this episode, Club of Rome member Maha Gopal is in discussion with MEP Philip Lamberts and MEP Aurora Laluc on how to shift to a well-being economy in times of crisis through policy implementations at the EU and member state levels. Discussion is moderated by the Vice President of the European Parliament, Heidi Hotala, and Club of Rome co-president Sandrine Dixon de Clerve. So continuing on that conversation that we've just had and the challenge that we had from Kate at the end, which was to really stick to our goals, to remember that our goal is as politicians. So your goal is truly to serve as people and planet because that's our home and to ensure that we truly do shift towards prosperity, not necessarily with growth. Can I maybe turn to um, Heidi, as you've been hearing this, mm -hmm. and have you yeah. open a little bit with your reflections, okay. and then I'll come to you, Philippe, and to you, Aurore, and then Maya, I'm going to come yeah. to you and ask you a little bit what your challenge is for members of the European Parliament and for decision makers. And we're very sorry that you're not with us. Yeah, well, I, I got quite a sort of a strange idea, um, first of all, to um, you mentioned that we are in this war crisis, the conflict, mm -hmm. uh, the Russian aggression on Ukraine. And when Russian citizens are asked if they support this war, um, I think a common understanding is that why perhaps 70, 80 percent of them say that they support the war is that they are afraid. They are truly afraid of expressing their views and they have fears about future and their position, what happens to them. And uh, of course, a lot of things could happen to them um, in this situation uh, if they express themselves freely. So I was thinking that um, uh, if we go to our citizens, uh, we ask them, do you really support this growth model? Um, do you really feel happier uh, now than you uh, felt when you were perhaps a little bit less uh, affluent, uh, a little bit less wealthy. So I could be th think that um, a lot of people would have the courage to say, no, this is not anymore what we need. We need to change course in, in our society, in our economy. But uh, still, I think a large part of the population would be a little bit fearful about what waits for them. And we heard from Dennis that um, uh, it's not wise to uh, give incentives like uh, subsidizing energy prices in general uh, when we have come to this uh, energy crisis. And there actually was a question, I'm just going to say, people are wondering why are we still subsidizing fossil yeah. fuels, for example? Yeah. Why haven't we phased it yeah. out? So, so I would say that um, uh, the question is that uh, we need to take care of equity, equality, so that nobody will be left behind with these high energy prices. But, but it would be a mistake to go on the same path. So. Mm. Where, where do we find this courage? And then I would say that uh, we need more participatory, more deliberative democracy. We need more popular initiatives. And as uh, Kate and others have said, and I think what we heard, the community is really important. That's where people get empowered, where they get the courage, where we can also share the vision where that um, now it's time to, to create a new purpose for societies, for mm. our lives. And there I would say that it's again a question of equity because uh, there are many people who are sidelined in our societies who don't feel that they have much of a say of anything like vision for the future. So I, I, I perhaps leave it to that. 
Thank you. And, and before I come to you, Philippe, maybe a few very key and important statistics. So we did, as the Club of Rome with some other organizations, a G20 survey last year. Coming out of COVID, we asked very clearly two key questions. One is, do you still believe that climate change is the greatest existential threat? 90%, G20, this is not Europe, just Europe. This is G20, so China, India, etc. 90% said yes, climate change yeah. is absolutely fundamental. The other key, 75% said, and the economy is broken. We need to move towards a well-being economy. So what would be, why are we still debating this as we've heard before, why are why are we have to repeat the the messages of the Club of Rome and of Dennis? Well, one thing is for sure, it's not for lack of evidence. Mm. Well, the report is now fifty years old, uh, so evidence has been around for decades. So this is not about not knowing. So if it's not about not knowing, it must be something else. And I would say it's the lack of will to mm. change because this system has losers and has winners. And well, as things happen, the winners are closely connected to the levers of economic and political power. So, you know, th th there's something that we tend to underestimate, I think, in this whole situation, is that this is really about uh, power and all this language about leaving no one behind and, well, let's move consensually uh, towards uh, the new economy, actually, denies the very existence of a conflict. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's conflictuality there, because indeed the extractive economy that we have, have winners. Mm -hmm. And indeed those winners are fighting tooth and nail to keep their advantages. I mean, we, we had votes last week in the European Parliament on uh, uh, phasing out free allowances for, for emissions, yes. which, are, which is just a symptom of the situation where we are. Well you still have uh, very powerful parts of the economy fighting tooth and nail against that. Mm. Uh, mm. Because indeed, they stand to lose. Because indeed, well, business as usual has winners and losers. Yeah. But the transition as well. Mm. And actually, those who stand to lose the most from the transition are those who benefited the most yes. of the extractivist economy uh, that, that we are living. And if you deny the existence of that conflict, you will never solve it. So how do we solve it? Well, you need to build majorities for change. Uh, mm. At the moment where the trust of the citizens in the institutions that are there to make decisions is severely eroded. We had elections in France last weekend. Uh, well, well, every other French uh, man or woman didn't bother to vote, and that tells you something mm. about the lack of trust. So it's really a challenge to show, uh, well, to show that indeed political decision makers can act uh, with the common interest of society in mind. And we have to demonstrate that day in, day out to rebuild the trust. But it's only by doing that that we will build uh, uh, majorities for change. But uh, I still am a Democrat. I do not believe uh, in the sort of enlightened elite who would uh, do a revolution and bring good policies about, because uh, we know where it begins, but we also know where it ends, usually. Mm. So we have to bring change through democratic means, uh, but that takes a lot of uh, convincing to, to, for citizens that indeed they won't be screwed, because of course they've been burned. I mean, we had a global financial yeah. crisis more than 10 years ago, 
And who paid the price for it? Mm. Well, the people, uh, the less affluent people. And then we had the pandemic again, inequality uh, 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 rose. And yeah. well, they, they, they will tell you, yeah, yeah, well, we know how it works. When there's major shift, it's us, the, 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 the ordinary citizens, mm. uh, uh, the, the lower middle class who, who are going to be screwed again. Yeah. And, and they don't want this. This is why we had the, the, the Gilets Jaunes in yes, France. Yes, and I was going to ask Aurore yeah. also about the Gilets Jaunes. To come to that, actually, Aurore, because two things that you said, Philippe. One is we've just had elections in France, and mm. we know where many of the disenfranchised did not vote. Could have actually also gone to Le Pen, um, so, so, we yeah. talked about disenfranchisement in the last panel, where actually communities often are disenfranchised. And the more they become disenfranchised, the more that fear mongering grows and the more they hold on to the existing economy, rather because they think they're going to be the biggest losers. So how would you respond to that from a position of we know what we've heard in the limits to growth. We know that we have new economic models. How can we bring more citizens on the journey? I think we need to redefine prosperity. This is what was saying Tim Jackson, Kat Frivers, Boy Benida. I think this is the main issue that we have. And if we can, if I can add something mm-hmm. um, about what Philippe just said, if we do not manage to get rid of GDP and the, our obsession with growth, it is also, I think, because we have also an kind of an emotional attachment to GDP because GDP is very linked to material development that we had right after the Second World War. Mm. And people managed to uh, uh, live in bigger house. Uh, they had, they could have a bath. Okay, this is something quite important. They could uh, buy some food, they could go on holidays and so on. So we have a very emotional attachment to GDP. That's the first point. Second point is, GDP is also very linked to credibility. When you are an economist, a politician, if you want to be serious and credible, you need to talk about GDP. I think this is also a problem that we have. Yeah, we have to change that. And because we there have are many new economic models and economists who should be the ones who are more and credible And we need today. to move toward a donut economy, by, yes. by the way. Uh, and uh, the third point is also fear. And this is very linked to what you say. I mean, when you tell to people that we are not going to refer to GDP anymore, that perhaps it's going to get down, get up, and we don't know yet, uh, increase, decrease, sorry, then people, they are scared because for years they were told that GDP means jobs. So the end of GDP, losing some the job, basically. So this is why I think if we want to bring people uh, toward the ecological transition, we need to redefine prosperity. Because let's say uh, the truth, it is a little bit scary to move into uh, a new world, actually. We don't know uh, how it will be. So I think we need to redefine prosperity and to uh, show that uh, the richest people are the ones who pollute the most and that uh, the poorest people People are the ones who are suffering the, the most from the pollution, for instance. Social measure will be key to make sure that we can have the ecological transition, I think. Yeah. Uh, Sandrine, yes? if you allow me, just before I came to this discussion, I went to the laundry shop uh, in our building. And what did I hear? Uh, the lady uh, serving uh, co- uh, customers, uh, he was talking, she was talking to the previous customers. She said, 
would you not want to use your, your bag again? Because we are now, now uh, going away from plastic because of the Green Deal. So the lady at the laundry shop, maybe she's influenced by the European <laughs> Parliament. But, but anyway, so it's, it's a beautiful example that uh, there was no fear in her voice. And uh, she just said, this is a new reality. This is how we have to act. And then she added to me when, when the other customer went that, yeah, OK, we have to look for, for ways to re how do how to we replace the plastic around these new garments, uh, newly washed garments. But anyway, with lots of self-confidence for the Green Deal. And that's what we need to build, right? Solidarity <laughs> and transformation. And I'm going to turn to you now, my dear friend Maya, because you and I have had God knows mm -hmm. how many conversations around how we can make sure that this is a multi-party movement, that this actually becomes a movement of decision makers together who show leadership and really do bring more citizens on the journey. You've been trying to do your best in Germany, and I would love to hear some of your thoughts as to how we can really create this leadership movement around the Green Deal and the Fit for 55 package in other ways. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Sandrine, uh, for bringing me in. I do hope that you can hear me more or less. It wasn't so yes. easy with Dennis. We can hear you. Um, great. I think I would like to pick up on, on one of his points, uh, or the maybe crucial point, and which is the short-termism and this feeling of it will get worse before it gets better. Because I think there's a lot in it that was also addressed now with this notion about will we lose out and do we then trust that the better is going to emerge? And um, in this respect, I think really thinking about how could we recast some of the aspects so that we can actually see that improvements are possible if we let go of the systems that are currently working. And I think it is one of the things that I've tried to bring forward and which role, yeah, it was pretty much given to science quite a lot of times now, um, next to the young people, is to say status quo is the worst possible option for the future. And to flip the burden of proof around to say, if you want to maintain a particular policy or a particular framework, you want to have to show what's the steering effect of it, because we still have a, so much in that rhetoric about, oh, don't disturb the markets, whereas we don't have markets in quite a lot of the places, because we need to break down on oligopolistic structures. Right now in Germany, for the first time, you can talk about these things, and the mainstream economists are coming in, by the way, to say, if we're not seeing uh, huge subsidies for fossil fuels, which we're currently putting out because uh, there's fear about too much uh, or too high prices on energy. They're not really being transmitted down to the end of um, the customers. And there's a lot of talk about the windfall profit taxation and a lot about can we agree or accept that a crisis of this magnitude is being used by the ones that are sitting on the resources we all depend on because we haven't been fast enough with the change to renewables. Um, that they really cash in on, on this crisis moment. And to really be very clear about how much this costs and how much we have to get away from subsidizing the status quo that is risking our future in order to be transparent about what is the cost of change versus the cost of maintenance. So really flip that burden of proof around because we still have to argue whenever we're presenting alternative proposals only on the consequences of those proposals and then benchmarking with the old um, ways of measuring progress. So the two go together with finding the alternative solutions and expressing what is being created in a beneficial way 
in the numericals because they're so strong. I think Kate said it nicely with the images, but we still have a very numerical question or language to express whether we're on a good way or no. And this is why I think we have to get them into the measurements like the taxonomy did, like the value balancing or capital coalitions that are saying, which are the valuable business models that help us create the green and the social, and then be even more courageous. And I've been talking with green and social entrepreneurs in the last four in Europe to say, if we are labeled the green and the social businesses, and we still have to perform according to profit and GDP metrics, what is wrong with the 95% of the business that are then obviously asocial and brown? So stop making us justify why we're still, whilst being green and social, are beneficial for the economy, but go reverse and say everyone that does not have those positive impacts shouldn't be called an innovation or a business model for the future. I think we have to be much more outspoken about the cost of the status quo, because then we can look into something being a change that already gets us into the it's getting better but only with that honesty about the disastrous existence that we have right now. And unfortunately, it is to a certain degree still in the models. We've seen how difficult it was to start acting on climate change and other issues that are not right in our face and their effects. We call it the prevention paradox, right? So you're not allowed to be that politician that says we should really go into structural change now before people experience the crisis themselves. And that was a bit the difference between COVID, but we still saw it there. It was very hard to do any initiatives towards lockdowns or something that were at the beginning of that curve, that exponential curve. But then when it was rising in order to flatten it, there was some justification. So how do we bring foresight in? How do we make sure that we get the understanding about the longer consequences into the everyday yeah, basically cost value or cost benefit calculations with which we're arguing what is the better political proposal. And then invite everybody in and say, we're fine. I mean, right now we've had it with the renewable energies in Germany. They've been green for a long time. It was always the kind of green party thing. Now with the war, they're the freedom energies. The liberals have adopted that. And now we're talking about the Heimat Energien, which is more the Christian Democrats. So it's more the ones that were building here, the home energies, right? Because they can be put in our gardens instead of having to be imported. It, it can be whatever, because I think we do understand that if we're improving the way that we're doing things, we will gain quality. I've been talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, also the ones that are very market orientated. They're really fed up by having to deliver mediocre product that breaks earlier just because of the price competition in international markets. So something like border checks adjustment, something like protecting the ones that want to produce higher quality output needs to be the ones that are being championed by political decision makers and not the ones whose business models we want to let go of. Then there's more freedom. If we build back our environmental systems. I think the nature-based solutions movement, the global commons movement, all of those are very clear that we're only going to open up the freedom of human existence again if we're upping the base upon which we depend. And I don't know if you saw the CIPRI report, I think one of the most important lines in it was when they're researching about the age of risk, that cooperation is the new realism. Again, I think we have to be really stark on the narrative flipping because it was always utopian to talk about cooperation. But it is, in the end, the only way that we're going to protect the global commons and a lot of the public goods that we've seen. And the last point I would like to ask us all in, 
how do we get from the quality improvements and the freedom improvements to something that would be maybe security enhancing? Because this, this wariness about falling behind, this wariness of not being able to have access to the primary services anymore is really strong. So how can we get into those positive framings of if we build back the assets that we've had, if we make the engine better that works, so how we produce things, we will have outcomes that we can measure in a way that speak to people directly. And that's the JRC overview of a resilient society, which I think really allows for us for many intervention points where loads of different parties can find themselves in to say, yes, we can do this better and that will alleviate the crisis. So be very stark on how and where we are here now so that this notion of it's gonna get worse is drawn down as much as we can and then show quickly where we're gonna win in uh, on the projection of the longer term change. Thank and you, Maya. I think this speaks to, to just the last one, the three motivators for people's activity is the one is this has to stop right? The moral convictions. Amatya then speaks about this. So this has to stop like threatening our children's future. The other one is, wow, that'd be fantastic if that was possible. That's the engineers that are really trying to figure out how we can also solve and meet several of the environmental and social goals. And the third one is, this is why championing, championing, championing the ones that are already bringing out the solutions. I can do that too. If someone else did it, I can do that too. So if we do all of that three, I think we are going to be able to find programs where all the different parties can find their specialties, but not question the overall goal again. Great. Thank you so much, Maya, and so much in there. And I'm going to come back to all of you now as reflections on what Maya has said, but also build in a little bit some of the questions that I'm seeing coming through the Slido and trying to build now from the last panel into hopefully some thoughts about what the parliament can do. And I know that Philippe, you're organizing a very large conference next year to really bring together multi-party backing for moving beyond GDP. I think there are several things that Maya said and that you've all said that I really wanna pick on right now. One is how do we get through the current crises? So Ukraine in particular, but also COVID, when we know that this build back better, first of all, you can't build back glaciers. Yeah. So building back better, unless it's bouncing forward and doing something completely new is not going to work. So what are those short term levers for you that are most important now? And how do we actually build that from a policy? That's the first. The second is that we've just finished our Earth for All new publication that's building actually on the limits to growth and looking at the kind of the Earth 4 model, which is system dynamic. And many people, including you, Heidi, have brought up the equity issue. Uh, one of the key issues there that we've looked at, we've had five turnarounds. We have to have really a clear turnaround around inequality, poverty, empowerment, you also spoke about empowerment, is fundamental. And it's only that way that we can then address two very basic aspects of our society, food and energy. And hello, that's where we hear the crunch right now in terms of the Ukraine. Mm. So these five turnarounds are short, medium, long-term possibilities. We even know that we could put in, for example, a dividend scheme, universal basic dividend. Mm. We could actually create citizen funds. We've unpacked the type taxing products, as Maya says, and production rather than labor. This would avoid the gilet jaune. So we know all of this. What is the next step and how do we put it on overdrive at a time when we're in the midst of 
more conflict resolution rather than forward planning. Philippe, I'll start with you. Well, to me, the most powerful lever that we have at our disposal right now and the one with the most immediate impact is the whole issue of taxation. How do we fund public services, uh, so public goods, uh, on what basis and with what, uh, what goal? I do believe that our entire taxation model is entirely built on the extractivist paradigm. Mm. Uh, and this is what we need to change. And there, of course, the good side is that indeed it takes a majority in a parliament to change uh, the taxation system. But if you want to do it at the level of the European Union, there you need unanimity of all 27 member states to yeah. do it, which is a bit more difficult. Yeah. But indeed, this is where also we can recreate confidence with our citizens that indeed we are reducing inequality, that indeed those with the broadest shoulders are going to bear the brunt of the effort. Mm. Uh, this is where really uh, uh, you can prove it. You can prove it. One of the reasons why we had the Gilets jaunes in France is not so much that diesel prices were slated to go up, mm. it that this happened exactly right after another taxation decision which was abolishing the wealth tax in France. Mm. And of course, the signal that it sends is, OK, we are going to make the lives of the 1% richest better, easier, well, yeah. easier. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. we are going to make them wealthier. Yes. And oh, by the way, we are going to uh, uh, make the life of ordinary French people worse. Mm. In, in terms of income. Mm. And, and, and therefore, no surprise that indeed you had a massive revolt against yes. that. But, but again, this is where we need to act. And as long as we are not shifting massively, reinventing our, our taxation system, we will not rebuild trust. And by the way, we won't have also the means for public investment. So to me, this is the most immediate uh, uh, level because yes, I agree with uh, with Heidi that we have to make our democracies more participative, reinvent them. Because I also don't believe uh, that you know someone has the blueprint of a sustainable society and just society, and that we just have to apply it. So I don't believe in this concept of an enlightened elite of society that knows better than society what is good for society. Yes. I believe that the, that the, that the transformation can only be the product of collective mm. intelligence and wisdom. Mm. But transforming our democracies is a process that will take a bit more time than changing taxation, which is why, OK, I say first things first, uh, we have to, to go there. But I see an enormous reluctance uh, by, by most governments to go there, because indeed this is where you will again shift the economic power uh, potentially massively. Yeah. And the wielders yeah. of economic power don't like it to be deprived of their, of their, power. Of their power. No, I, before I come to you, I've just heard that Dennis might want to say a few things. So Dennis, I hear you're still online. Did you have a final reflection that you wanted to make based on the conversation that we've been having? Are you, can you hear me, Dennis? Okay, we have a bit of a technical problem. Maybe I'll I'll turn to Haiti and then I'll I'll come I'll come to you. Oh, yeah. Okay. So first of all, I, I want to thank Maya for um, mentioning this need of reversing the burden of proof, the narrative. And so I mean, just today we can ask that how how so would it be uh, wiser, more sustainable? 
uh, to um, label uh, gas and nuclear green. No, uh, we have a narrative which says that no, this is not the case. Uh, I just listened to the Norwegian prime minister in Finland who said that uh, they are going to produce 30,000 megawatt uh, worth of um, offshore wind power and that he's already in discussions with Germany, uh, with the Vice-Chancellor uh, Habeck, about uh, perhaps uh, Norwegians could help uh, the, the Germans to get rid of the, the uh, dependence of, of yes. gas, and especially Russian gas. So 30,000 megawatt worth of offshore wind power is like 30 nuclear power stations. Which would we prefer? So let's try to reverse the burden of proof. And then um, um, I think... Um, this question of taxation and incentives is really important because, I mean, nobody would say anymore that it's, it's, it's just the four of us plus um, um, maybe 20% of the population who need to sort of struggle every day in the shop to get the most ecological uh, options and uh, give up car. No, we need a systemic change. Mm. And the, the incentives are really key because a lot of people would follow if they had the right, right incentives. So I think we have to, to struggle here in the European Parliament for getting rid of this unanimity rule between yes. the 27 member states. And I see that or around Philip, we all as an institution, we agree deeply on that because we want the EU to be able to make a change yes. because people also have shown some trust that the EU is the right place to, to, to try to, to combat climate change and, and uh, global poverty, things like that. And then, then Let me the, just check, Maya, that yeah. you're still on because I don't see you anymore. No, it went... No? Um, I can hear you well. Okay, super. <laughs> okay, then one, one okay. more thing is about this, this supply chains. Like, um, uh, now we see that um, our supply chains are broken and disrupted. Mm. And, uh, Unholy uh, alliances and dependencies, indeed, my dear Haiti. Indeed. So now is the moment when we can say that, look, uh, you can indeed go for this high-mat energy. You can produce uh, your circular yes. uh, fertilizers instead of uh, importing from Russia, you know, um, nitrogen fertilizer produced with a lot of uh, energy, uh, fossil fuels. So, so this is the moment of what I would say regenerative food systems. And not, maybe not only that, but the supply chain issue is a huge chance now to, to yes. change things in a massive scale, in my view. Kate really tested us on shifting from degenerative extractive yeah. to regenerative. Mm. And, and Aurore, as, as also as an economist, I mean, clearly I assume that you started your, your thinking, which was much more kind of a career probably in normal linear economics. And now you've shifted, which is because we need more of this shift. How are you seeing what we've just talked about, in particular, again, in the context of these dependencies that we have and coming from France, how do we work with the French population so that they realize that actually we won't have any more gilets jaunes if we move towards a well-being economy? Well, I think that actually I will come back to taxation because it is definitely key. We need What we need is fresh money right now to invest because what happened with the yellow vest also is that we had this taxation Taxations that were decided by the government without any possibility of talking with them. Government alone decided of this. Uh, and then 
people were trapped because uh, if they wanted to go to work, they had to have to fill in their car and they had absolutely no alternative and this is why investment is key actually we cannot have uh, any uh, incentive of this kind of stuff via taxation if we do not build any alternative right before and right now what we need is to invest to invest to have some public investment just as Gentiloni uh, said uh, a few weeks ago especially uh, on uh, on renewable uh, energy and this, uh, this kind of things and to do so we need to have fresh money and we need definitely to have a windfall profit tax on uh, energy enterprises because they made a huge amount of money uh, those last months and this is not something we can tolerate and we need especially since we need some some cash so i think this is the priority right now taxation public investment and that to would help also people. work on overproduction of course and so we would tax the bads and enable the goods which we actually today which was a groundbreaking day for those of us working on the taxonomy um we got the gas and the nuclear out of out. the taxonomy yeah um Heidi and i started i mean i started my career and you were a young member of parliament here in the european parliament on the tax incentive scheme for cleaner fuels and it really worked I mean, if you wanted to buy dirty fuel that had lead and high sulfur levels, it cost you more. But actually, the cleaner fuel cost you the same thing that you would have bought the dirty fuel. Why don't we don't? Why don't we do that? I know for this we need to find and we need to build majority, just like Philip said the, right before. But I think right now, really, and I insist on this because we had all this idea of. Um, price carbon and this kind of stuff. And I said, this is very, this was very useful and it is very useful. But what we need right now is to invest, to invest, to invest. Yeah. If we want to have some, uh, to uh, reduce our consumption of energy, if we want to change the way uh, we, uh, uh, we consume, we produce, we need to invest. I think this is really the key message. We need to have a Green New Deal and a massive uh, investment plan. So I've got several questions, and Maya, I'm going to bring you in on this one um, for the next one. So one is a fee and dividend scheme. And in fact, I've got one person who's asked this over and over again, so I'm really going to ask, do we think we could pass a fee and dividend scheme across Europe? The other key question, I think this is a little hilarious. I don't know if it's a joke or not. It's, it's whether we should expose the limits to growth in the History Museum of the European Parliament. And I would say... That's lovely from a nostalgic perspective, but I would actually say, no, let's, we can do that. Exactly. Not in the museum. At the, the museum. table. At That's the why we needed it. the decision table right here. Smack. Whenever we make decisions, we've got yeah. the limits to growth right there. And also in terms of our educational system, as we were saying, we've got now a slew of PhD students who want to do their PhD in new economics. So we should be making sure that we have yeah. those offerings for those students in different schools. So Maya, what are your thoughts on fee and dividend? And also, you're thinking also of how we can really translate limits to growth into something concrete. Mm -hmm. And anything else I mean, that you've heard? The, the fee and dividend was one of the um, policy proposals that we had in 2019 in Germany, which was also actually linking between some of the economists' camps here uh, to try to find an answer that would be socially progressive in its effects and still be able to raise the prices on the pollution, because often it is played out against each other. And I'm very grateful that you mentioned how the Gilles uh, weren't against the environment 
but we're just saying, look, I mean, this is crazy. You're letting this become very expensive whilst um, alleviating taxation on the ones that don't really need any alleviation in the first place. So I think this this whole idea of how do we find the solutions that are socially progressive whilst allowing for us to make expensive what is downgrading our value in society and to be really clear that it is a downgrading of the value, the downgrading of our future wealth in terms of the environmental that we have. And this is where it's come together. And it's been so surprising for us why it wasn't possible to still find a proper agreement on this. Um, now we've got an energy guild which goes straight to the people to be able to purchase more energy when it gets expensive but it's not tied to any rise of the co2 price anymore so we've lost the coupling between the social and the environmental but i think if we go into value um um add a value taxation for example vat we have in germany such a weird system where meat etc and dairy are only seven percent and everything there's a vegetable is 19. We yeah. do not um, prioritize repaired products, for example, over the ones that are produced cheaply and will probably break within a year or two so that we have obsolescence built into them. So if we go at the steering effect of all the things that we have as taxation there, including the direct indirect subsidies of 65 billion uh, into the fossil area still, we have so much wiggle room without having to completely change what it's gonna to cost to still have a completely different steering direction that I think it is very worthwhile to always look for those instruments and yes. how we can change them accordingly. Thank you, Maya. The I think I'm gonna to have to interrupt you because I've been told that I need, I only have three more minutes. Um, yeah. Let me bring in Philippe Lambert and Aurore and let me come back to you if, if I have the time. Sorry about that. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, well, the, the energy subsidies that we are giving now are just fossil fuel subsidies. Yes. That's what we are. We are yes. just feeding the bottom line of uh, energy companies. So that's not the, the right decision. But indeed, fee and dividend is what we need to do. And in a way, uh, the ETS2 proposed by the European Commission combined with the Climate Social Fund is a sort of, sort of first attempt at that. But we see already how much resistance mm. it brings. Mm. Uh, because, of course, uh, the, the Climate Social Fund will never be big enough to compensate uh, rising CO2 prices. So this is where you absolutely need the cooperation of the member states because yes. most taxation levers reside with the national or regional governments mm. in, in, in Europe. And this is where you need the integrated approach. And we have a tradition in Europe where basically the European Union is the driver for climate action and the member states are rather, uh, well, uh, pushing on the brake. You know, mm. uh, and we need to 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 break this uh, this sort of uh, of deadlock. And a final point on what Maya said: just imagine that we would basically mandate that uh, well, products have to have a warranty that corresponds to their well to the best technology in town. I mean, if a car can last 15 years, it has to be guaranteed 15 years. But there, basically, it's not that you shift the the burden of the proof; you shift the the burden of the durability on the mm. producer, mm. on the producer. If the producer had to, has to make sure that its product has to be guaranteed for 15 years, believe me, they will make it so that no repair will ever be needed because yeah. the repair will be on them. Yeah. And, and that yeah. is where you can really, with, with uh, this is regulatory reform. It's not mm. even taxation reform. Regulatory reform, you are shifting the market.
Yeah, and you get into a services market Absolutely. as well, which is Absolutely. what we need. And we need Absolutely. to create redundancy in the system. And then they will to tell you, yeah, but there will be less jobs if we produce la uh, cars that last longer. Yeah, but then again, no one says that every human being should work 40 hours a, a, a week for 48 weeks a, a, a year for 45 years in his yes. life. I mean, if yes. we need to work less to produce less, that will reduce our ecological footprint as well. So I'm going to come to you, just a thought there. Um, this brings us to exactly what Dem Dennis said, because this then becomes the creation of a mature society wow. that reflects actually the fact that we should think about universal basic income, exactly. that really the most important thing is that we underpin a mature society where the tissue of that society is vibrant, not necessarily, and that vibrancy is not just based on producing, voilà. that vibrancy is based on making sure that citizens are engaged and happy and thriving rather than surviving. Uh -huh. Vibrant, but also to slow down the reason. I mean, we need to work less to make sure we can produce ourselves, we get that we can read of overconsumption and this kind of stuff. And I think something we can do at the European uh, Parliament also is something that could seem a little bit uh, symbolic, but that is key to me. Get rid of GDP each time we can in every text. Delete GDP. That's much more than symbolic. <laughs> more than symbolic. Yes. I don't know. Uh, replace it by yes. uh, economic activities and add each time that we can social indicator, ecological indicator, and the donuts because this is what we need, actually. Thank you. Maya, do you want one last reflection and then we need to go? Yeah. No, I think we have a moment in time also just because we have such a proof now that we're socializing the costs and, um, and privatizing the profits wherever we look at in the climate response, in the finance response. And it's a pattern where I think we can be very clear that that has to change. And then it allows for a different way of thinking of interference. And the last point, the economic literacy, when we look at the inflation now being used by some of the austerity promoting parties to say, oh, now we have to cut down expenditures and we have to make raise interest rates and not have the investments that were managed, especially public investments. Isabel Schnabel, is one, the ECB director, has made a really crucial distinction, I think, we have to have in everything, and it talks to the short-termism. She said, A, we have climate inflation. There are rising prices already now because of the effects of climate change, especially when you look at harvests and food production. So we can't forget the costs of inaction if we're talking about why prices change. And the next one is the fossil inflation, which is exactly the abuse of the market power in order to make prices even higher than they'd have to be. And that is another aspect where all the austerity measures are not ever going to help. And the third one is the greenflation, which is about the public investments or the public-private partnerships, where we should talk about ownership to be extended to citizens. That is a temporary thing, especially in the energy market now, because the upfront capital costs are high, but then we're going to be much better off in the future because there are no few costs, and obviously lots of the collaterals are going to be gone as well. But we have to differentiate and tell yes. people that they shouldn't be falling into the old narratives. They have so, they're so stuck in our way of thinking that we fall into the threatening that comes with repeating them. So we do need that economic literacy.
We need that economic literacy and we need to shift the narrative, as you were so well saying, Maya, to make people understand that actually the new narrative is vibrant, that the new narrative doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually going to work more and sacrifice, but actually you're going to start living a vibrant life and that you're going to be a permanent actor within the economy in a very different way. I'm always fascinated and then we will end by the fact that actually people say, but hold on. We have a vibrant economy. Well, first of all, no, we have an economy that no longer is in touch with people, no longer reflects economic activity, is over-financialized, so that actually if you fire 10,000 people in a company, your share price goes up. Now, what is wrong with that? You cannot tell me when we have the highest suicide rates, mental illness, and burnouts that we've ever seen in supposedly the wealthiest societies that people are happy. Thank you so much. I really Pleasure. hope that we will be able next year through this conference to waken people up. But in the meantime, there's a lot of work to do oh, in yes. this house oh, yes. together. And you can count on the Club of Rome to come shake things up with you. Thank you, Thank you so Thank much. You. I think I'm going to turn back to you now, Heidi for some concluding remarks. Yeah, th thank you very much. I'm, I'm really encouraged about this in uh, initiative that you have undertaken, next year's conference, uh, Beyond Growth 2023. And um, let's uh, see that it will become a game changer to support already uh, existing trends that need to be strengthened so that uh, everyone uh, learns to speak sustainability, which, uh, by the way, um, you, uh, Sandrine, you, you spoke about um, the sim that we are treating symptoms. You, you mentioned that we have this uh, uh, CCC, we have uh, COVID, climate, we have conflict. And we are only treating symptoms one by at a time. So I, I'm confident that uh, what you might need to do is, is uh, to look for sort of integrated solutions, that we are treating the root causes and, and trying to solve several issues at one time. And uh, I think Maya has given good examples on how you can, can do that. Uh, then secondly, I'd like to say that um, uh, this vision, uh, I think it, it's important to, to talk to people who are not in these bubbles that work for ecological transformation, green issues. And um, I, my, my favorite topic would be to suggest that we need to go to vocational training um, to, to motivate, to give vision for people, purpose for the work that they do, because uh, sustainability and uh, beyond growth needs everybody's contribution. So how can we really bring everybody on board? And then the question of, uh, of uh, the regulation. Uh, Maya mentioned that um, um, now uh, costs are socialized and uh, profits are privatized. And I would say that uh, what this house is also very busy with is important, that is uh, corporate accountability. That they, it, 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 it is not any more acceptable that corporations get away with uh, causing costs to global commons and, and privatizing the profits. So a lot to do and um, it's been an honor to, to have uh, the Club of Rome as a co-organizer of uh, this two-hour event and especially Sandrine as uh, co-president of the Club of Rome. Um, by the way, you have really done a wonderful work of moderating these two hours. And uh, we know that the, the conference that you are planning now is very cross-party. So it means that all the political forces that believe in the uh, in, uh, future and see the European Union as the institution that can be solving them will be on board. 
No, I think it's been fascinating and um, um, maybe just uh, I, I will share a last uh, personal memory. Uh, I wasn't one year old like, um, like Kate when, when the um, uh, limits to growth were published. I was about maybe 16 or something like that. And uh, I started uh, writing about um, uh, the food system of, uh, of this globe. And I, I very much condemned uh, this um, uh, trend towards more and more eating meat and animal protein because it would take 10 times more land and it would use 10 times more energy. So again, there is a topic that has been known for a very long time. Mm. Mm. And let's let's uh, tackle this type of systemic issues together. So thank, thank you very you. much for Dennis and everyone else who have been with us. Thank and you so much. For Katie. the MEPs. And Good luck me... for the conference. <laughs> and let me also thank you for being my co-host and for some of the incredible members of this house that really have shown bravery in trying to bring forward that courage that Kate really asked us to be courageous and move forward in sync towards this mature society. And I'd like to also thank EMAS um, mm. and the work that actually the EMAS committee does here. I started my career on EMAS. Good. <laughs> and, and actually my first environmental management system was in a nuclear facility in Belgium, <laughs> Tiange. And the reason I bring that up is because through my career, I realized that actually most companies have emergency plans. And yet our planet continues to function without an emergency plan. And the fact that we are not declaring an emergency right now, that we are not understanding that climate conflict and COVID are interrelated, that we have not put in place the sound findings of the limits to growth and continue to have to repeat ourselves, as was said so clearly, is appalling. So my call to everyone today on the screen and coming to your point, those that we must reach that are not in our bubble, is the vision of the future is up to us. We need to stand up to the plate and get away from pretending that we're intelligent, <laughs> put our egos to the side and remember that we are part of this planet that we call home. A systems approach is the only way forward. Mm. New economic models and financial models that truly reflect the needs of people, their lives and their livelihoods. And it's the only way that we're gonna get out of this mess. So I'm hopeful that before even your conference, we get some big decisions from the European Commission. I'm hopeful that with all of the incredible members of the club and so many others that are converted already, that we bring out a narrative that brings more people on the journey so that the populace understand that this is their vision as well as the Greens, and that we truly are in the next decade, this decisive decade, able to show that we truly are wise. So thank you very much for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you, Sandrine. Thank you, Philip. Thanks for listening to our podcast, marking 50 years since the limits to growth. For more information, please visit clubofrome.org. Thank you.